Shape Moda designs women's trousers to suit everybody's shape to get the perfect fit. Just imagine that as soon as you wear a pair of trousers, they feel like the best piece of clothing ever. Dress for your body shape with Shape Moda and make a huge change in your life now. Go to shapemoda.com and find out which body shape you have. Shape Moda gives you the perfect fit. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I hope you're all enjoying your summer. And if you are not battling your way through Dublin Airport to fly off somewhere fun, I hope you will manage to enjoy the little bit of good weather that the experts are claiming is on the way here. In this episode, I spoke to a woman I've admired as a journalist for years. Her name is Angela Flannery. And I noticed her over the years because she always had the kind of writing that jumped off the page especially her restaurant reviews were so entertaining, original and full of sharply observed detail. So I was very excited when I heard that she had written a novel and that first novel, The Amusements, is all of those things. It's all the entertainment, the originality and sharply observed detail that she brought to her journalism. The book is great. It's set in the seaside town of Tremor, County Waterford, And it follows a whole host of characters, including two school friends, Helen, Stella and their families and their neighbours' lives over two decades. The Amusements is an unforgettable story about all the roads taken and not taken in people's lives. And it's a beautifully observed portrait of life in a small town shot through with truth, compassion, humour and humanity. Angela talked to me about how in her late 40s she decided to put her day job on pause to write the novel. She spoke about the inspiration for the book and about the vibrant women's writing scene in Ireland at the moment. And I began by asking Angela why she chose Tremor as the setting for the amusements. Well, uh, Roisin, thanks for inviting me on, first of all. And uh, the reason that I chose Tremor is a place that I know very well. Uh, it's where we went as kids on our holidays. I was born in Waterford um, and I lived there until I was eight. So every day of the summer, we would take the bus from Waterford City out to Tremor. I mean, really early in the morning, kind of the first bus at half seven or whatever to get the best spot on the beach <laughs> with your big bag of blas and lunch and sausage and crisps and whatever you were bringing, you know. And we would sit there until you know, just we have to go home. I'm not until it was dark, but like at seven o'clock in the evening, the last bus back. So all my childhood memories are, of, you know, just very happy, long, sunny summer days in Tremor. Um, and so, but that isn't really why I chose it to write about. It's just to say that I do know it very well. I read William Trevor's short story, Honeymoon in Tremor, about, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago. Absolutely loved it and thought, that's funny, you know, that nobody other than Trevor's ever written about Tremor. It's such a generous place for a fiction writer. It just gives so much, you know. Um, and at the time I was writing a novel and I was stuck on it. It was kind of giving me a bit of trouble, you know. Um, characters weren't doing what I wanted them to do. So to take a break from it, I wrote a short story set in Tremor. Really enjoyed it. Then wrote another short story set in Tremor that went on to win the Harper's Bazaar um, short story competition. And was published in Harper's Bazaar and that story was about a little girl called Helen Grant 
whose father was drying out in a mental hospital in Waterford and her nanny brings her in to the hospital to try and get the father out for Christmas, to try and guilt him into it. But Helen is too young to understand that she's been used in this way. Um, now, yeah, so it won the prize and it was published. That was great. But I couldn't get her out of my head, you know. I was like, oh, this little girl, what happened to her? You know, did she stay in Tremor? Did she grow up? Did she, What kind of job did she get? Did she go to college? Was she happy? Did she have friends? And it was just endless, endless questions about this character. And I started answering them. Um, and, it, you know, the, just the answers became the amusements. It was that simple. But it took a strange, not a strange form. I wasn't surprised by the form that it took. But you find out what happened to Helen through the townspeople, all these fictional characters that I created in Tremor. So you meet her teacher, you meet her best friend, Stella, who's really important and her best friend's mother. Uh, Nancy Swain, who's extremely important. But other than that, you know, the local butcher, the guy who's after opening, you know, the Italian um, kind of posh restaurant down on the prom. Her brother works in the amusements hall. There's, you know, the local Elvis impersonator. It's kind of a whole colourful cast of characters. And the people then who come and go during the season and Tremor. And through what happens to these people over the space of maybe 25 years, we learn how Helen's life turned out. So I suppose it's a book about home. It's a book about belonging or not belonging or having to escape from where you come from and about the endurance of friendship and of formative relationships. You know, the people who help us along the way and the people who hinder us and how the effect that we have on other people's lives. And we may not even know just little things that we do, little kind of cruelties or little acts of kindness that might seem insignificant to us, um, you know, but we don't know what effect they have, a kind of butterfly effect, you know, further on for other people, the ramifications of it. So that that's, you know, in a very long roundabout way, <laughs> uh, I hope an answer to your question. Are you surprised and delighted by the feedback? Because, I mean, you know, you have some incredible quotes from people like Anne Enright. I know you did the MFA in fiction um, and she was one of your tutors um, and she's full of praise. People are just uh, comparing you to Elizabeth Strout and Kevin Barry. I mean, it's it's actually incredible. I think you're number two in the in the bestsellers at the moment. So did you expect any of that? God, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Never. I mean, I couldn't believe you. I got the call yesterday to say, look, it's after going into the charts. And of course, when I think charts, I'm like, I'm like Frankie goes to Hollywood or Spando <laughs> Ballet. I'm straight in at number two. I kind of thought, no, this get a grip. This can't be real. But yeah, you know, people seem to have really taken to it. And you're right. They've been very generous. The other, um, you know, writers who I admire so much, Anne Enright and Donald Ryan um, in particular, they've just been so kind in reading the book and sort of the feedback that they've given. And it is very helpful. I mean, especially to be compared to Elizabeth Strout. You know, she's one of my heroes. I admire her so much and I really enjoy and would like to think I have something in common with her as a writer and that I'm interested in community and the characters that make up community and the kind of codependency and then how that is reflected in the form that your writing takes, this episodic kind of novel, a composite is what the Americans call it. Um, and that, you know, you never really leave a character behind, that they keep re-entering and re-entering. And she's, does that, she's just done that so beautifully with Oliver, Olive Kitteridge, but especially with My Name's Lucy Barton, you know. And there's another Lucy, Lucy novel coming in October, you know, so it'll Exciting. be the fourth one. Oh, I'm so excited about it. But I admire her so much. And I mean, I wouldn't even imagine that I could ever 
Like I'd aspire to have the control and the economy of her prose and just the simplicity of it where she manages to just break your heart with the simplicity. You don't even know she's sneaky. She's really <laughs> sneaky in the way she does it. And I'd love to be like that, you know. So I'm very flattered. It's incredible. And, you know, and Kevin Barry is, I think, is our best living short story writer. Um, and I think a lot of that is, you know, his voice and his delivery of his stories. I just I've listened to his the stories that he's published in The New Yorker so many times just mm. for the joy of walking along, you know, the coast listening to them. Yeah, he's amazing. Well, listen, you before this book have been in journalism for a long time and that's where I'd know you. Your brilliant restaurant columns, like everything you do is, is fantastic. And I've sort of followed your work over the years. And then you you talked about writing the short story and you obviously made a decision that you were going to really try and give fiction writing a go and to leave the journalism behind and see if you could make it, which is a very brave thing to do. So tell us about that decision. Well, look, Roisin, you probably know as many frustrated uh, fiction writers as I do. <laughs> yeah. You know, like a lot of, you know, I always wanted to write, but you, who says I'm going to be a writer when I grow up? I mean, I kind of thought writers are like barristers or guards. It was a genetic condition. <laughs> and, you know, I come from a family of plumbers. So that was my fate, if, if that's the way things were going to work out. But journalism seemed possible. It seemed like a way of getting in and writing. And, you know, I, I worked in radio journalism. That's where my staff job, if you like, was. But I always had to write. And so I was really lucky in that I got a lot of freelance gigs writing. So, yeah, I wrote for um, I wrote for The Independent for 12 years for a restaurant column. And they gave me great poetic license, you know, because half of it was about the food. But the other half was about the people I was eating out with. And I gave them nicknames. And if you followed it for long enough, there were narratives for each character over the 12 years. But I mean, of course, it was all lies you know they're like so the cost of eating out with you Angela is that you'll say anything about me I'm like yeah but I'm giving you a fake name so it's fine you know um so that was you know I did manage to kind of get my creative kicks that way and the Indo were great for allowing me to kind of do that misshapen type of a review um but it, it did become quite frustrating I'd start writing short stories and I did start writing a novel that I got quite far into. But every time I got a commission, I just put it down. And I was a news journalist in radio, which is all consuming. It's around the clock, you know, so you just you, you have to give writing time. It really, really takes time. And I'm a slow writer. You know, I could write really quickly for news. That was the great thing about it. You never brought your work home. And there was only one way of writing news. It was straight, you know, no description. You just told it as it was. And that was it. Um, but when it came to writing, creatively, and I would include my columns and the features that I wrote in this as well, I would torment myself over the word order, the choice of adjective, whether the adjective should be there at all, um, you know, over semicolons. If the subs, this was their problem, not mine, you know, the M dash, M dash or a comment. So all of this was saying to me, Angela, really, or, you know, you should be writing fiction. You can't journalism. You'd never make a living out of it you know, the way you're carrying on. So, yeah, so really, Roshan, what happened was that I just got very frustrated with writing for other people when I wanted to write for myself. And as time progressed, I thought, well, you know, you're never going to do this. It's kind of like, you know, it's almost like my biological clock as a writer was ticking. And it was like, you know, come on, you know, you're going to be, I don't want to be ageist about it, but, you know, there does come a point where I didn't want to be in my 60s publishing. You know, I kind of thought I'll get away with it in my 50s. <laughs> So here I so am. So what age were you when you made that call and decided to do something about it? 48. Okay. And what did you do? So I left 
I, you know, I pulled back from my freelance writing work first, actually, and that happened longer ago. That probably happened in my mid 40s. Um, but then I left to JFM um, about five years ago and I got a job in the arts, a uh, part time job uh, managing the Laureate Nanogue, the Children's Literature Laureate, which was great. Really enjoyed it. I was in a different sector, a different tempo. I was kind of in, you know, in that industry, but it was only two days a week and that gave me the time to write. Um, of course, I didn't realise that I'd run out of money very quickly because you can't work part time in the arts. It's just not viable. Um, so like people have said, I, I feel now that I shouldn't have said I had to Airbnb my house to survive. <laughs> I did that for a couple of months until I got my act together. And wasn't I lucky to have a house that was Airbnb able? And I just went and stayed in other people's houses while they were on holidays. And it was that. But I mean, that gave me a deadline. You know, I have a son. Yeah, I'm a lone parent. I have a son. He had to go back to school. He needed his bed back and we needed routine. So it was, yeah, right. You've got you've got two and a half months now to kind of get your cloth cut to measure and I did it and it's fine you know but the Arts Council have been very generous I've gotten two Arts Council bursaries you know I wouldn't have been able to do it without that. Mm. I mean that does sound like a lot of pressure though um, because on the one hand you're trying to be creative you're trying to dream up all these characters and make this amazing world of this coastal town and all the crack and the misery and the hopes and the dreams that are going on there and on the other hand you're kind of going if I don't if I don't get it together if it doesn't get published you know what what have I done it all for were you were you feeling any pressure like that not really no because you see when I started getting the part-time gigs I was I was really it was very fulfilling working for Children's Books Ireland with the Laureate Nanogue you know and then I started working with the Dublin Review Literary Magazine I do their podcasts and I um, do their social media so you know, I, I I suppose because I've done freelance writing, I'm not afraid of being a freelancer, you know, I um, but it does eat up your time, you know. So, no, I, look, I don't worry about I I live very, no, I don't live cheaply. That's right. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not very, I don't care about handbags and designer clothes. I've got a banger of a car that broke down in Waterford last week. I, you know, I, I go on holidays and see friends abroad. I don't, you know, I really... It's more important to me that I like what I do every day. It's just just that simple, you know. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't. I, I, I worry about other things, you know, about the happiness and health of my son or my mother or the people I care about. I don't really worry about money. You know, I'm not I've got a roof over my head. That's all I need. But when you've written something you want other people to read, I mean, that's the point. You're writing for readers and well, tell me about the road to publication then and how that went. Well, the MFA at UCG was hugely helpful, you know, because you spend a year and I was only there kind of one day a week for a year, but it was very intense. But you're in a class of I was in a class of five and four of us now are published. Um, so it was we we're all very different, but very, very supportive, very ambitious, I think, talented in different ways. And that was great to be part of that kind of a community, you know, where there was the momentum behind us. And as you say, you know, Anne Enright is one of the tutors there, but Paul McGrath and Paul Perry, Frank McGuinness, there's a great team there, you know, um, on that faculty. So it kickstarted me, you know, and having committed to take a year out and spend the money to do that, you're like, right now I've got to make it work. And so that was that was it. So the next thing was to go and start 
looking for a publisher and looking for an agent. Now, I'd, a novel I'd written before this one um, had was one of the winners of the Novel Fair in the Irish Writers' Centre. So I'd had that experience. I think they call it speed dating with agents and publishers. So I kind of had an idea of, though, this is what agents do and this is what publishers do. But I was incredibly lucky because I just entered a competition with a large segment of the amusements called the Deborah Rogers Foundation Award, I think it's called. And I wasn't longlisted or shortlisted for it, but one of the judges uh, pulled my uh, submission out of the slush pile and rang me and said, "Could I have a whole manuscript? And I said, yeah, and I sent it to her. And she was an agent with RCW and she said, look, we'd like to sign you. So it was, you know, and that was that was my 50th birthday at the start of lockdown. Oh, wow. What a day. Oh, completely. Because I I was just right. OK, we're in this, you know, Armageddon situation. I'm middle aged. I've given up my job. <laughs> no one wants my book. <laughs> it can only get better. And then you got that call. I got that call and Claire Wilson is my agent. She's been absolutely amazing, you know, and she just over the next year, over lockdown, we hammered hammered, hammered, hammered at the book because it's an unconventional interconnected narrative and uh, got it to be as good as it possibly could be and polished it. And I was just delighted the day I got the call and, you know, she said, look, Penguin are interested in this. I mean, the idea of having the Penguin logo on a book, you know, my debut fiction is just was amazing. And so I was working with an editorial team in Dublin in Sandy Cove, Penguin Ireland. So it was just the best of all possible worlds, as they say, Roisin. So, yeah, I'm look, I'm incredibly fortunate. This podcast is brought to you by ShapeModa.com. Log on today to find your perfect fit. Going back to the structure, because when I was reading it and I absolutely loved it, I wasn't sure sometimes if I was reading a book of short stories, if I was reading a novel. But the funny thing is, Angela, it didn't really matter to me, which is interesting because normally I'd kind of be a bit annoyed by that. Whether, you know, um, just, yeah, is what is this thing? But actually it was so good. It's so well written. The characters jump off the page that suddenly you're just sort of in this world and you're going along with it, almost just you're riding the wave of the book, which I think is absolutely to your credit. But you know, I do think again that was risky and it was brave of you to, to go that way. Well, you just write the way you write. Like, I didn't sit there thinking, I'm so brave doing this, you know. <laughs> I mean, there were times where I thought, I'm absolutely insane for doing this because, you know, the characters were so real to me. I mean, I walked around with these people in my head for three years. Like, they just were so real. And maybe that's why people are enjoying it, because the characters feel so authentic. And I cared so much about what happened to them. How is it? They get tied up in awful knots and then you have to try and untie them. How are they going to get out of this? And every chapter they go into, are they getting further into the knot or is it untying them out of it? You know, that was kind of, it's a, it's a tangled narrative, I suppose. Um, so, I no, I didn't see it as great. That's just the way that I write, you know. And um, yeah, I just, I loved them. The bad ones as well as the good ones. There are a couple of real bad <laughs> in there. And I wanted a natural justice to take place. So a short story, you don't have room for natural justice in a short story, you know, but people say they find short stories frustrating because if they really like a character or get into a story, then it ends, they feel kind Mm -hmm. of shortchanged. Whereas I think when you're looking at an episodic uh, narrative, 
And sometimes people don't realise this with their reading. Joan Ryan has done this a lot. You know, Maeve yeah. Binchy did it a lot with her early books as well. Uh, it's what Liz Strout does, uh, Visit from the Goon Squad, Jennifer Egan's book. Um, there's a lot of famous, famous novels that are actually, you know, composites. So the idea that you get to meet the character again further down the line and that maybe it, you get to find out from a different perspective that yeah. Yeah, maybe they weren't that, re- you know, they were the old unreliable narrator and you didn't realise it or maybe they weren't as bad as they seemed or do they get their comeuppance or, you know, just, you know, look, deal them a better hand. And that's what I wanted to do, you know, that and I feel that that is probably if it is a page turner of any kind or if it is compulsive, it's because you want you care about the people and you want to find out what happens to them. So um, but that's all fine to say in retrospect. It sounds like, well, am I very clever? That is certainly <laughs> not what it felt like when I was sitting down writing it. I mean, I, I painted the kitchen with blackboard paint and bought a big box of white chalk and I would be in there like a lunatic, you know, at all hours of the day and night moving people around and it kind of felt like a police procedural who's there who had the motivation whose fault was it really you know um but it was great crack it did come together in the end but it was it was it was if i thought oh i'll just you know throw together a couple of short stories set them in tremor and that and then it's linked jeez oh, i really have my work cut out for me it was more I, I it was more than i bargained for to be honest you know because there were narrative holes all over the place and you couldn't have them it was going back and picking up stitches a lot of that so um and speaking of Tremor, um, I mean, I suppose you wouldn't have thought of when you were writing it necessarily, but were you worried about what the locals would think? Because it is, it is very much about that place that, you, you know, you can picture it. I've been to Tremor a few times and you just really described the place so well. Um, and obviously you're going to have a whole lot of people in Tremor reading it going, well, now. <laughs> but here, the thing is, um, my mother now lives in Tremor. She moved there. Like I grew up in Clonjolkin in Dublin and when my father died, I was in my 30s. But my mother is from South Kilkenny. Waterford area and she moved back down there. She just loved, it's a beautiful place to live, really. People see the amusements and stuff, but they don't think about like the Gillamine swimming, um, all the rocks and diving boards. Not that my mother's over there, but the Donnerell Walk and the Copper Coast. I mean, it really is naturally very beautiful. You say it for more to people and they kind of go, oh, it's a bit tacky and there's lots of fast food and all of that. No, there's an awful lot more to it than that. And a very, you know, long history as well. So I have a lot of respect for Tremor. People have from the area have so far been very positive, but people who haven't visited it have said that the book and have read the book have said the book has made them kind of reevaluate what they thought they knew about it and that they'd be interested in going there. So, yeah, look, I I can't control what people are going to say, Roisin, or think about it. So I will write it. I'm not going to do a hatchet job. It's not a review. There is a um, travel writer in the amusements who um, just combobulates the locals by saying the place is dirty and there aren't enough amenities and stuff. It's okay for me to write about him, but I don't want to be him. And, you know, it's up to people to make up their own minds, really, about the book. I'm not in the business of telling people what to think. And obviously, I hope they like it and I hope it resonates with them. But, yeah, I can't... I'd only be tying my hands behind my back as a writer if I started thinking about that, you know. Yeah, I think what's also very interesting about it is how you treat class, because, you know, it's something that um, I don't know. I mean, maybe 
other writers, maybe other Irish writers have done it recently. But for me, it was very uh, different because there was a lot of people down on their luck, a lot of people who've been dealt a very bad hand. And that doesn't mean to say, I don't want to give anyone the impression that it's not a joyful book because there's very, loads of joyful moments in it as well. But um, I really liked the way you handled those characters and the difference between the people who were a bit more well off and a bit more well got. Was it important to you, that, that depiction of, of kind of very ordinary lives, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's where I'm most comfortable as a writer is writing about very ordinary lives, you know, and I kind of think that you don't really know what's going on in someone's life. You know, people put forward a certain persona or front, but they've got secrets and history and, you know, grief and heartache and joys and, you know, hobbies and interests that you will may not know about that person. And that's regardless of where they come from. But I think it's also very true that, you know, money might be unevenly distributed, but actually talent isn't. And that's the point really with the amusements. The most talented artist in this is Helen. Yeah. But she has the least opportunity. You know, it's not an even playing field. And I really strongly believe that. And I didn't set out to write about that, but it just, if it's in you, it comes out of you, you know, and I feel really, yeah, I've got a very strong sense of social justice, I think. That just happens to, it'll just come out like you can't hide it. It's kind of squirts out all over the place, you know, it's really, but yeah. So I, you know, poverty is a, there's an awful lot of freedom that comes with not even necessarily having a lot of money. It's just having choice. You don't want to be trapped, you know, and when people are living in poverty, they're trapped. They don't have the space to move and they certainly don't have the opportunity to explore talents, particularly if you're a fine artist, which is what she is. You know, um, and that seems to me desperately unfair. I was talking to someone recently about how class is still one of those things that people in this country anyway can can discriminate openly against people about, whereas other things are now taboo and other things aren't. But it still seems to be OK to to be quite you know, rude and snobby about people from more you know disadvantaged areas. Is that something you have observed or that you believe? Um, yeah, I think it, I think that is true. Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, you can be any orientation sexually, you can be from any race, whatever, but if you've got no money, you're really at a disadvantage. You know, you really, really are. I think class is the great leveller, you know, and it's a, it's about really simple things like having enough money to be able to live with dignity, you know, to have a roof over your head, to have the education, to have at least have the, be able to make a go at what it is that's your dream and your talent. And I think a, a lot of, um, you know, especially see it in teenagers from disadvantaged backgrounds, it's all panned out for them. They never get a chance, really, you know. Um, and look, that's not to say that there aren't great organisations working in communities and all of that that are trying to stop this. But I do think that we take so much for granted, you know, that you're going to grow up and you're going to go to college. And if you have a talent that it's going to be encouraged and, and I, you know, I mean, Helen's parents are not discouraging to her because they don't think she's talented or doesn't deserve it. They just don't want her to be disappointed and discriminated against. You know, I mean, her mother initially, I think people's response to her is like, God, her mother is an awful wench. And it's like, no, she just doesn't want Helen to be discriminated against. But her father is all for it. Her father is encouraging her, you know, so it is. Um, yeah, I yeah, it's just a matter of inequality. And I didn't like, honestly, I did not. The book isn't, you know, a heavily political book or anything like that. But I think in people's everyday lives that that that, you know, it does decide so much for you. 
um, mm. you know, the type of family and the circumstances that you're born into. Yeah, it really shone through for me in that Helen-Stella uh, friendship, which I also really loved because it reminded me, I think it's a very universal thing, those very intense friendships that happen when you're that age and then they kind of fall apart but we pick them up at different points in the book and we see how, how things turned out for them I can see that you got very close to your characters like that Helen and Stella are probably still in your head and still there yeah yeah their lives spinning out yeah they are and I suppose that you know they're 16 or 17 at the central part of this and you know for anyone boys as well as girls I think that it is that breaking away from the home and from where you come from and looking to the future and, you know, thinking about, you know, your sexuality, what, who do you want to be? What kind of person are you? What are your beliefs? And I do feel that people are almost, you know, you're fully formed really at 16 or 17. The adult you're going to become, you're not fully formed, but like there's really good indication of this is the adult you're going to become. I think the 16 year old you are. And that sort of, striving for independence and for identity the urge to do that is so strong at that age and that's what these girls are at you know um but again their circumstances kind of eclipse it certainly clips helen's wings but no stella manages to take off because her circumstances are different um and yeah I, i'm always interested in talking to people about who they thought they would be not it leave leaving certain all of that out of it like yeah maybe kind of at 16 before it gets into oh well if you're your cao and what are you going to go to college and all of that malarkey you know which i just think is it's not irrelevant but for so, so many people end up you know doing i I don't know about you but i certainly if geez if i was being judged on my leaving certain now i wouldn't be <laughs> i wouldn't be having this conversation for sure um but you know i think maybe at 16 it, it's really interesting to ask people who they thought they were going to be, what music they were listening to, what they were doing every day, who was their best friend, you know, and how, then to, to meet them later in their 30s and kind of see how, how did it all work out for you? How, did, yeah. how have you evolved or have you gone back to that? Some people I know say that they were at their purest at that <laughs> age. Now, I don't, I'm, you know, I don't mean that as a moral or kind of, yeah, but just the, their truest. Their essence. Yeah, their truest. They were truer to themselves at 16 than they are in their late 30s, which is when we leave these characters. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, I just love, as I said, the writing in the book. I mean, it's so original. It's so lively. There's so many brilliant turns of phrases. And all I can think of is what's the next one then? Because it's like you with Elizabeth Stroud, who I love as well, I'm dying for her next one. And I'm dying for your next one as well, Angela. So what's going on? Have you Airbnb'd your house out again? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Jeez, I'd have to do a major refurb on it at this stage. Um, no, it is not, it's nothing to do with Tremor. Um, I've kind of set it aside while I'm promoting the amusements and I'm working on some short stories at the moment. But yeah, I, I've I've started a new novel and I'm under the skin of it. But come September, I want to go back and I'm not, you know, I'm the kind of writer who goes at stuff in mad bursts where I just lock myself away and that's all I do. So I can't do that while, um, you know, we're talking about the amusements and I don't want to leave Helen and Stella yet. I'm not, I'm not ready to leave them, but the, yeah, the, I mean, it's, it's a similar territory. It's nothing to do with Tremor, but it's family and, um, inherited grief is a big part of it actually. And it's set in Dublin and New York and Mullingar, a place I know nothing about. <laughs> Interesting combination. About. I like it. Dublin, New York, Mullingar. So it, yeah, it's got that whole thing of like, you know, where do you come from? Where do you, where do we all come from? You know, that's that's mm. the question with it. But the interesting thing about it is that one of the main characters in it, the one that's from New York, I woke up in the middle of the night 
a couple of months ago and I realised he's a really minor character in the amusements. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, it's you. How did I not know? 30,000 words into this book and I don't know. Now I realise it was you. You were the one that she was having the affair with behind Lorcan's back. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. A really minor character, the most minor person in the amusements. And it's him. Because I suppose every character you create, even the one-liners in your head, you have to interrogate. Who are they? You know, why this person? And now you've planted them. You've planted the seed of a person. And there they are at the back of your mind growing away. And I had no idea, you know, after writing 30,000 words into a new... Now, I don't know if those 30,000 words could end up in the bin. But, um, <laughs> you know, hopefully not. But yeah, really getting into this character and realising he was the guy that... Um, Joanne had the affair with, mm. you know. That's mad. And are you in a position now to sort of devote your time to, to writing? Are you going to have to be getting part-time work or has the amusements allowed you that freedom? Uh, no, no, it hasn't. And I think I'll always want to work part-time anyway, you know. I mean, I want to kind of get out into the world and, you know, see people and sort of get, you know, you live off that. You need to kind of, you, you need, I don't want to be sitting in, I've had enough of sitting in one room now for the last two and a half years, <laughs> you know. But no, I loved what I do with the Dublin Review, so I'm really happy doing that. And, um, you know, I still do a bit of journalism. I do film reviews for Arena on Radio 1 and um, the odd bit of writing and stuff. So no, I'd like to do a bit more teaching, actually, because I really, I used to teach journalism and I did teach a short creative writing module in UCD when I was doing the MFA. And I really enjoy teaching. You know, I like being around young people and I like being around people who are at a kind of a learning stage when they're curious and they're, you know, they're willing to take risks and stuff. I, I like that environment a lot. Yeah. Not so much lecturing, kind of tutoring and workshopping where you can really get hands on with students. I get a lot out of that kind of teaching. So, yeah. And Angela, who are the writers that you admire and, and what do you think of the whole uh, massive rise in popularity of Sally Rooney? Because it seems to me that Sally Rooney has created and she would, you know, she would say this herself as well, that it has allowed more interest in particularly women writers in Ireland. Have you seen that happen? Do you think it's a good thing? Well, no, I do. I think it's a great thing, of course. I, you know, I'm a different generation, you know. I mean, I'm in my 50s and they're much younger and they've got to live in a different world and write in a different way. And it's so exciting to me to read them. I mean, it's like Sally Rooney's immensely talented and she makes it look so easy. But I mean, there's a whole load like Nisha Dolan and Megan Nolan, a young just, I, she probably doesn't think she's young herself when she's really young. She's incredibly talented also from Waterford, brilliant writer. Neve Campbell, you know, the, the, it just so many magnificent young Irish female writers and they're all very, you know, they're, they're quite different to each other as well. You know, it's not that it's the Rooney effect where suddenly you've got Sally Rooney and all of these sort of impersonators on her coattails. No, I, I, I think it's amazing. I think it's really, and it's long overdue. I mean, Honestly, Roshan, if I go into a writing class and I still do writing classes every so often, I'll go, you know, look up what's happening in the Writers' Centre and I'll sign up for them. Um, and long may that continue. I think it's important. I'm in a writing group as well every week. Um, but the point I'm going to make about it is, is that 80 or 90 percent of the people participating in these are women. Mm. You know, so it's not some kind of bias. They're doing the work. Like they really are doing the work. It's not as though it's suddenly fashionable to publish women. Women are writing more than men. That's why they're getting published more than men. And I've seen that over the last five years, every single writerly thing that I've gotten involved with has been predominantly 
women trying to learn, trying to put their work out there. And that pays off. And aren't they also the ones buying the books and reading as well? It seems to me that there seems to be a huge um, proportion. Well, I think, yeah, I th- you know, that seems to be the wisdom. I haven't done any sort of independent research. Yeah, I haven't got the stats myself, but I, I hear that. I think around fiction, yeah, yeah, and around literary fiction, definitely. You know, it's not just women's commercial fiction, it's it's literary no, fiction. No. And it's, but I do, I think that men are more inclined um, to read nonfiction, you know, and, and to read biographies than women are. Women like stories. They like complications. You know, they like, yeah. They've enough reality in their daily lives. They don't want to be reading nonfiction. Well, they probably read nonfiction too. But yeah, I do think that. And I think that men probably are resistant to reading fiction by women. I mean, I thought I thought Anne Enright's um, final laureate lecture, and it's published in her book, No Authority, the time she was um, fiction laureate, was really, really interesting, the research that she did. And she had done proper, like in UCD, she had a proper research team working with her. Um, about the number of books that by women that were reviewed and then the number of books by women that were reviewed by men, which was almost nothing. Like They don't hand books by women to male reviewers. I don't understand that. There'd be no resistance whatsoever to asking a woman to review a book a man had written. But that seems to almost still be the case. It's rare that you'd mm-hmm. read it. Although, yeah, the Times, I mean, Neil Hegarty had a review last weekend Um by uh, is it Tish Delaney, is it? That's the writer's name. I'm her novel. It sounded good. So it's not just, um, you know, there are exceptions, but mostly it's women reviewing women's work and with the assumption that women are going to buy it. So I don't know. I can't change that. I just I just write the stuff. <laughs> well, I can't wait for the next stuff you write or your next book. And I would be urging everyone. I've already told loads of people about your book and how great it is. Um, and there is incredible praise on the back of her from wonderful writers. I can, I want another young writer is Louise Nealon, who I also really admire as well. And she's said lovely things about it too. So um, I just have to wish you the best of luck with all your writing and um, hope that, when do you think that one will be out? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I, don't, I honestly have no idea. I, could, I couldn't project, I mean, you know, I'll write it and then do what I did with the amusements I'll just keep at it I find it really hard to let it go because it's never good enough you know and I know it'd be it's move away from the book Angela leave it no it's never it's not ever going to be good enough but there is a point where you realize you have to put it out there so I'm not in any I'm not in any mad rush I mean I'd like to think within a couple of years it'll be out you know but I, I, I really don't know um it'll be it'll be out when it's ready is the answer that's a good answer Hmm. Like a good meal or something out of the oven. Yeah, I wouldn't give someone, you know, a half-baked cake. So yeah, it's not, <laughs> no, it'll be out when it's ready and, that, and that's it. And I'll, I'll do my best to, you know, yeah, to just get it ready in time for something. You know? Brilliant. Well, it was lovely talking to you, Angela, and well done again on the amusements. It's an incredible book and everyone should read it. And it's just, I, I agree with you, it's wonderful to see the wealth of talent. I don't care what age people are, just, I just don't care what age people publish a book at, um, as long as it's good. And, and this is a great book and well done. Thank you so much, Roisin. That's it for now. Thanks so much to Angela Flannery. And the book is called The Amusements. I think you get the impression, you know, that I really liked it. And I think you might too. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram or email us the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>